You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. I am glad to be back with you today. And we have a very interesting topic. It seems like I don't know, the world has always been going crazy, right? But at the center of the world has been the United States for a long time. And there seems to be some new, fresh threats to the U.S. world order, led world order, excuse me. And today we're going to discuss a little bit about that and how Americans can find some solutions to protect themselves and our economic standing. And my guest is Benjamin Koshbin. Did I say that right? Hoshman, but Hoshman. Okay. All right. I even asked you before. Yeah. (laughs) No worries. All right. I am infamously bad at names. My listeners are not surprised when they saw your name in the title and went, oh boy, how's he going (laughs) to mangle this poor man's name? Benjamin Koshman is a contributor to Young Voices. And uh, I'm really impressed with the article in National Review that I read Why Friend Shoring is Key to Countering China and Russia. Now, maybe since you wrote that article, I don't know if this was before or after, but Z goes to Russia, I think it was, and they're saying goodbye, and they have, they're have just besties now and shaking hands, and this will be very productive. Was this written before that took place? It was written before the official visit, yes, but uh, written shortly after uh, those approaches had been made, shoring up that alliance, saying it was a quote-unquote no-limits partnership. I remember seeing pictures from that particular visit of Xi and Putin drinking vodka together and cooking. Looks like they had a nice meat cute almost, which is bad for the Western world and bad for the US. But I'm glad, I guess, that they had a nice time. But that's the whole purpose of friendshoring is it's not just an economic policy. It's a natural security policy. Yeah. Explain what friendshoring is. Let's define the word and it'll shade and weave throughout the rest. So I wanted to get the definition out of the way right from the top. Sure. So onshoring is moving supply chains home to your country. That's not possible for everything. It's just not feasible. We don't have abundant supplies of certain critical minerals. It's quite expensive to do a lot of things here because of higher labor standards, environmental regulations, and because of supply chain logistical issues. So when you can't onshore it, you can friendshore it, which just means moving crucial supply chains chains to a friendly country, preferably one that shares our values, one that isn't directly aligned with our adversaries. Yeah, so what struck me about your article is it felt a little cold warry if I'm if I can be critical. Uh, and I don't know if I'm being critical. It just maybe is what it is that there is I think since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we have the famous the end of history with Fukuyama and the West One and America will lead the new world order into this global democratic capitalist utopia. And obviously that's receded. You've got Trump here, Putin, Z, all across the world, really, you have a lot of nationalist movements taking place and democracy is a little bit under threat. We're seeing a realignment now where it will be a little bit more like the Cold War, where you have this China, Russia, maybe even India, which is India may be a swing state in some of this stuff. 
versus Europe and America. But that may be Macron's comments this past week coming back from uh, meeting with Xi in China was we're not going to follow the West. We're not going to follow the Americans. So that may is America alone in some of this or where do you see things heading in terms of is it just going to be a lot of moving players? Will America continue to lead or are we facing some sort of like bipartisan Cold War? Yeah, that is a tough question. Obviously, I don't want to return to a Cold War, but unfortunately, that is just how great power politics work. When you have a unipolar world like we've been in for the past 30-ish years since the fall of the Berlin Wall, as you said, there's always another, another hegemon that tries to displace the unipole, in this case, the United States. So I think we're moving quickly towards a bipolar or maybe even a multipolar world. And uh, I'm a firm believer that a unipolar world is the most stable. And I would prefer that the sole hegemon be the United States or, because we're a small L liberal democracy. I'd really not prefer for an autocratic state with nefarious intentions to uh, to have equal or, uh, or, or surpass us in economic and military power. So I think you're seeing that things that were emblematic of the Cold War, like proxy conflicts, are popping up and increasing in intensity, looking to Ukraine in particular. I think that this will be much different than the Cold War in that we can't completely silo off our economies from each other. We're far more interconnected now than we were. We're far more interconnected with China than we ever were with Russia. I'm not necessarily advocating for a completely independent economy. I don't think that's even feasible. What I am advocating for is we should be independent on the things that matter most. Energy, critical minerals, national security, materials that are important to and sensitive of national security. So things that we make microchips with that go into our stealth fighter jets, our aircraft carriers, those things we should have independent and secure supply chains of. And also things I didn't even mention in my article, critical drugs, personal PE. We saw during COVID how exposed our PE and our drug supply chains are. So things that matter most, I'm not advocating that all of our, I don't know, fertilizer or our iPhone cases should be made in the United States because that's not necessarily economically feasible, nor are those items of significant national security concern, but the things that matter, we should have at home. And uh, regarding Macron's visit, or Macron's visit to China and his comments on that, I think he's being panned, rightfully so, by other European leaders. They don't see Macron as the leader of Europe, saying, why is Macron presuming to speak for us? There's no European army, even though Macron has in the past advocated for one. So the EU isn't even moving or acting as a single body. But I think he he's wrong to say that the EU should or even can become independent of the United States. I think that's evidenced in large part by how much they rely and have relied on us for energy during the war in Ukraine. They would have been completely out of luck if it weren't for U.S. natural gas exports. Russia cut off almost all of their natural gas exports to Europe during the war in Ukraine, and uh, the United States filled the gap. The United States now supplies more than half of Europe's uh, natural gas imports. They're also lucky that uh, last winter was unseasonably warm. That really bailed them out, but uh, future ones might not be. They might have a very cold winter, and 
they might be coming back to us for help. And uh, unfortunately, I think that because you have such a segmented ag- energy policy across the European Union, I just saw that Germany today said that uh, they are going ahead and closing their nuclear plants, uh, which doesn't spell well for them. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> what? Yes. Did they watch Chernobyl and what? just get spooked? Because that happened to me. I'm big on nuclear. And then I watched Chernobyl and HBO and I went, no. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, thank you. But I get the like spookiness of uh, Fukushima and Three Mile Island. And you can have a major catastrophe, but... You mentioned in the article some art alternatives because uranium, I was surprised at how much uranium we get from Russia, but yes. there are other alternatives to just massive nuclear power plants. Can you talk a little bit about those and why we need to spin up uranium here in America? Of course, I guess you could call them boutique or bespoke nuclear power plants, which are site-specific. They aren't created in a factory. You choose your location and you build it there and it's totally uniquely licensed. That's the past. The future are nuclear reactors called SMRs, small modular reactors, micro reactors that are another name for them, which are built in factories and transported to their uh, to their eventual home. You can think of these like the reactors that are in our nuclear subs or our nuclear carriers. They're much smaller, but it's still the same fission process. They're much safer because of advanced passive safety features. They're much cheaper to build because they're built essentially in a factory on an assembly line and you don't have to license each one individually. The issue, however, being that they require a different grade of uranium. So your typical large pressurized water reactor requires uranium fuel that's enriched to about 5%. An SMR requires fuel that's enriched between 5% and 20%. And that's called HALU, H-A-L-E-U, which is high assay, low enriched uranium. Now, unfortunately, all of the HALU in the world is currently produced by Russia. They have literally 100% of the HALU supply chain. That's not great. China is the only other country that is able to produce commercial grade HALU right now. Now, the U.S. is working on it. We're working with U.S. and foreign partners to begin spinning up HALU here in the States. I I don't think that'll be ready till at least the end of this decade. But apart from HALU, we just need to start producing, mining more uranium domestically. We used to, back in the 70s and the 80s, we produced almost all of our own uranium. But a confluence of environmental concerns and the fall of the Berlin Wall and cheap uranium from Russia and Kazakhstan, other former Soviet bloc countries, flooding U.S. markets made it no longer feasible or really practical to mine our own uranium. But uh, now, because of national security and economic security concerns, I think that there's a compelling case to start mining and enriching more of our own uranium or having our allies do it. Australia has the world's largest uranium reserves, but uh, they don't mine it. They do mine it, but not as much as they should be, in my opinion. I think they're only fourth or fifth in total production. Kazakhstan is first in total production. And uh, yeah, I think it's an imperative. Not only will it uh, bring jobs back to uh, back to America, but it'll ensure that we're not vulnerable to uh, uranium supply shocks. 
Did we somehow get recreational backyard nukes like my libertarian dreams and I just didn't notice it? What in the world, Benjamin? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I was at a dinner with the in-laws who are all very well-versed and libertarians. And uh, we were having a conversation a little bit about in environmental standards. Is that something that hamstrings us? You seem to follow this a little bit. Our consensus was of us non-experts who like just read libertarian memes was we're getting fooled with all these environmental standards because we agree to all these Kyoto's and other environmental standards. And then China and Russia say, yeah, sure, we're on board too. And then never follow it. And so these Western countries are not developing their own resources and still relying on other countries like uranium. Australia and the United States probably aren't doing it for environmental reasons. Where's the balance between protecting the environment maintaining safety standards here in the United States, uh, protecting ourselves from climate change, pre preventing it if we can, versus being competitive. So I think the number one, in my opinion, roadblock to not just clean energy in America, but infrastructure and just building things, period, is, uh, is NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. And NEPA is like the Magna Carta of environmental law in America, it prescribes a mandatory set of steps that every federal agency has to follow when approving a project. And it requires mandatory clean water, clean air review, ensuring that it's not impeding on land rights, on endangered species, different biomes, everything under the sun. And it was well-intentioned. It is important that we, I'm a conservationist, we should protect our natural landscape and uh, different species that uh, live that live amongst live among us, but NEPA is far too onerous. Uh, there's absolutely no limit on how long these reviews can take, and the average review can take upwards of uh, four to five years. There's also no limit on injunctions that can be filed by environmental activist groups. So groups like Greenpeace or Sierra Club can just continue th throwing lawsuits at these different projects and, and keep them up, keep them held up in court perpetually. So there's been a lot of pieces of legislation. Uh, last year, Senator Joe Manchin proposed some NEPA reforms that would have cut down that environmental review process to two years, I believe, and uh, the injunction window to 120 days. That would be great. It would mean that we're not allowing, whether it's a pipeline or an offshore wind project to be held up for five to six years, only to get a only to get a no, and uh, unfortunately, Democrats—not all Democrats, but I would say progressives mainly—are not in favor of clawing back any of NEPA's protections. But they fail to understand that the main concern. I think of things in the aggregate. I think of climate change and emissions in the aggregate. Emissions are the biggest impact. So, if you want to lower emissions, you need to build more clean energy. Right now, clean energy looks like wind, solar, nuclear, and natural gas. Natural gas is relatively clean. It's about half of the emissions is coal. And it's extremely cheap. So it's a great transitionary fuel until we're able to have, or if we're ever able to have a total clean energy grid. But I'll tell you what, we're never going to have a total 100% renewable grid. And I think you're seeing right now the issues with renewable energy. There are tons of cases, I'm trying to remember, it was maybe in Ohio, where a, a farming community objected to a new wind turbine project 
because of all the land that it would take up. And that's one of the big issues with wind and solar is they have some of the highest land use to energy rate, to energy production ratios because they just take up space. But nuclear has the lowest land use to energy ratio because uranium is so unbelievably dense in terms of the uh, the amount of energy that it can produce from just a small little nugget of uranium. So, yeah, I think we just have to think about things in the aggregate. Do we want to just sit here and twiddle our thumbs and not let anything get built? Or do we want to allow America to start building again? Yeah, that's the having been through the wind fights of Newcastle, Indiana with our friends out at Hog uh, of Liberty. I'm skeptical that big power nuclear reactors could be built in a place like Newcastle when they're not going to accept wind. And the NIMBY problem seems just as strong, if not stronger, than maybe some of these environmental groups. I want to read a passage getting back to friend shoring as we start to close out here. But I'm going to read a passage from your article at nationalreview.com. The world remains dependent on our rivals for energy and critical minerals. China accounts for 85% of rare earth metals processing, 60% of the world's lithium refining, and three-quarters of the lithium-ion battery production. Your laptop battery. Just as we can prime our energy exports to benefit our allies, we can collaborate with our allies to counter our adversaries. U.S.-Australian collaboration rare earth mining has already led to China's global market share of these critical minerals dropping from 80% to 60%. I think those are some great statistics, Benjamin, on how friendshoring, if we're not if we're gonna have the NIMBY problem here, we're gonna have the environmental problem or the the green pieces running around blocking everything. That's where friendshoring can come in. What are some other examples in the article or not in the article that that kind of speak to that? Yeah, it's a great that's a great question. Other examples, I'll point to Australia again. Australia has as everyone knows, a ton of extra space and extra land. And uh, even though they do have a lot of opposition, for example, to mining uranium, I still think there's an enormous potential there for U.S. assistance and U.S. partnership in both mining uranium in Australia and even maybe moving some of the enrichment the enrichment supply chain to Australia. Other examples, you're seeing it right now. I guess this is more an example of onshoring, but everything that we've done to move chip manufacturing here to America with a TSMC building a factory. I believe it's in Arizona. That's a great example of, I guess it's almost a reverse of French roaring. It's uh, we don't necessarily need to build things here with American companies because that's not always feasible. I can't just spin up a semiconductor company and, in, in a couple of years, but moving companies, foreign companies that belong to our allies here to America to uh, to build things, to hire people, those are uh, those are great options as well. I think that there are tons of examples of both friend shoring, where it's U.S. companies building things in foreign countries, in allied countries, and foreign companies building things here in America. It cuts both ways. I think that's a great example. Also, circling back to uh, uranium production. We're partnering with French companies, actually. Orono, uh, I believe, is the company. And Uranco, I think, is one of the other companies that we're partnering with to build uranium enrichment processing here in America. doesn't have to be a U.S. company as long as they're hiring U.S. Uh, US employees and uh, they're based here in the U.S. And that means we have a strong grip on that supply chain. So I think I'm not, I don't want to sound, and you don't think that I am a protectionist by any means. I don't think that the, the government should or can control every aspect of the market. And I am skeptical of a lot of broad and sweeping industrial policy measures. But I think 
that this is targeted enough that it's not going to disrupt profits or the economy in any major ways. And I think the way that I think about it is it's a national security imperative. And maybe there will be some price increases in the short term. Everyone you know who understands economics can see that. But I think that they'll smooth out over time and that ultimately that's the price we have to pay to ensure that our supply chains are resistant to supply shocks and uh, that we're able to counter our adversaries as well. Yeah, you point this out in the article that Russia and China use a classic American tendency where I'm not going to pay more for that Yeah, <laughs> against us as a weapon. Can you? But I think when you look at this, I had a moment during COVID where we all talked about how, oh, 85% or something of our antibiotics are made in China and we don't have those plants here. <laughs> what happens when you're in a COVID-like situation and then all of a the sudden they decide they don't want to ship you any antibiotics? That puts your people at risk, you know, and insulin or some of these very key drugs it i like you i'm not a protectionist i'm a free trader i'm a milton friedman fan i'm a capitalist i do think at the same time it is smart to make sure that you're you're thinking about your own people because if you're in a world where ever, it's like tax abatements right newcastle residents don't want to have to give all of this money but if they don't to you know what's the chip manufacturer that's building the 1.8 billion dollar chip plant here in Indiana, Kokomo is going to give them a tax abatement, so Jasper will lose out if they don't too. There's there's some of that where you've got to you've got to play ball and think strategically about about some of this stuff. Final thoughts on this. Please wrap up with anything that we didn't mention. Sure. So I think a good way to think about this is free trade with free countries. We should be trading openly with our allies cautiously with unaligned countries and only only when necessary, I guess you could say, with our adversaries. And I'm not saying embargo China, I'm not saying embargo Russia, but we should be conscious of which supply chains are centered where. Um, should we stop buying all of our electronics or fertilizer or I don't know, canned goods from China? No, that's not feasible. That's just going to raise prices on American consumers. But should we stop buying the ingredients that go or the materials that go in our electric vehicles, in cr crucial parts of our energy grid, in our fighter jets and military hardware? Should those come from China? Should those come from Russia? Probably not. And if, God forbid, things get worse, then we can address those other areas. But I'd like to be on the safe side and make sure that our supply chains of medicine, of PE, of energy, of national security, important materials are safe. So free trade with free countries, and let's be a little bit more cautious about who who, and what we trade with, uh, with countries that may not have our best interests at heart. All right, Benjamin, give us your shameless self-promotion. Where can people follow you if, you, if they'd like? Hit, hit me with a follow on Twitter at B-E-N-K-H-O-S-H-B-I-N. That's B-E-N-K-H-O-S-H-B-I-N. Same handle on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I tweet about energy, foreign policy, succession, various memes. So yeah, give me a follow. You had me at succession and memes. All right. Thanks so much for joining me, Benjamin. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you, listener, for joining me here on The Chris Spangle Show. We'll see you again next time.